Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So every Thursday night in our neighborhood up in Northeast Portland, at least on our side of the street, we take out our bins to the curb uh, to be emptied on Friday morning, sometimes very early on Friday morning, sometimes very loudly and very early on Friday morning. Uh, but on Thursday night, I take out the recycling. It's a, it's a big blue bin, take it out to the curb. I take out the compost, big green, and truthfully at this point, kind of grungy bin. Uh, we take out our glass in that, that uh, yellow box bin. And then every other Thursday night, we take out the trash, which is a brown bin. And uh, we have the smaller brown bin. And so on that every other Thursday night that I take the trash out, our smaller bin, I see our neighbors with their bigger bins. And I have to be honest, I feel just a little bit self-righteous because I'd like to imagine that we are maybe just a little bit less consumptive, that we are maybe just a little bit less wasteful, maybe a little more conscientious than them, uh, which of course is not at all true because they all have kids and we don't have kids at home anymore. And when we did, we used the big brown bin too. Uh, and well, last week I actually had to call up the waste management company and have them send out a truck uh, for a special pickup at our house because we're redoing some rooms upstairs and there was a, a a mattress and box springs that I didn't know what to do with. And well, there were a couple of old uh, futon mattresses in a closet that we had to get rid of. And uh, there were a few other things. And by the time I finished, we had a pretty good pile of trash uh, on the curb outside our house that night. So I've been thinking about what we dispose of because last week we had a pretty good amount to dispose of. But I've also been thinking about what we dispose of because that's a pretty big part of what this story from Luke 16 is all about. Jesus tells a parable and it begins, there was a rich man and he was a pretty rich man. He dressed in purple and back in those days, purple was an incredibly expensive dye to produce. He wore fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day. Uh, there was a rich man and there was a poor man and his name was Lazarus. And every day his friends, would take Lazarus and lay him at the gate of the rich man. He was hungry. He had open sores. He hoped for nothing more than maybe a few scraps from the table of the rich man, but it was only the dogs who came to help him. It was the dogs who came and licked his sores. There was a rich man. There was a poor man, and they both died. And at this point, this has the makings of a pretty good Pearly Gates joke. But the rich man doesn't find it to be funny at all, because when the poor man dies, when Lazarus dies, he is carried by the angels to the arms of Father Abraham in paradise. But the rich man finds himself in Hades, where he is being tormented. And so you have this complete reversal of their stations in life. Now, it's interesting. I think it's terrifically significant that when the rich man in Hades looks up to Father Abraham in paradise, he sees the poor man. And he knows his name. He knows that that is Lazarus. In his life, he knew him. He knew that he lay at the gate and he did nothing. And now in death, nothing has changed at all, has it? The rich man looks up to Father Abraham and says, can you send Lazarus to dip the tip of his tongue in water and cool my lips? Because I'm burning up down here. 
Somehow this rich man imagines that the social categories that had organized his life have somehow carried over into death, right? I mean, he's just, he's entitled, he's hard-hearted, he's obnoxious, uh, he's clueless, right? He doesn't apologize, even though that would have probably helped his case a little bit. Instead, he still expects that someone of Lazarus's status is there for no other reason than to serve him. So for the rich man, Lazarus is a throwaway person, a disposable person. In life and now in death, Lazarus is there for him to be, uh, for, for the rich man to use. Lazarus is there to be consumed. Lazarus is there to be thrown away, to be disposed of. The rich man knew Lazarus's name. And now all these years later, we do too. And that's pretty unusual. It turns out that uh, Lazarus is one of only two people that are named in all of the parables that Jesus tells in all of the four gospels. And the other person, of course, is Abraham in this story. In every other parable that Jesus tells, it's uh, there was a farmer, there was an accountant, there was a prodigal son, there was a older brother, there was a nameless rich man. But in this story, he gives the poor man a name. He is Lazarus. Now in Hebrew, the name Lazarus would have been translated as the name Eleazar. And in Hebrew, Eleazar means the one God helps. In his life, his friends had helped Lazarus. They carried him every day to the gate of the rich man in hopes that he might find a bit of food there. Uh, in his life, the dogs had come to his help. They had licked his sores. But in his life, the rich man did not help him. And for all the people who were listening to Jesus tell this story, they would have assumed that this rich man knew the Torah. He knew the law. He knew what he was supposed to do. In Deuteronomy 15, it's written, uh, since there will never cease to be some in need on earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. <clears throat> Everyone listening would have known what was expected, and they would have expected the rich man to do it. But he doesn't. And in that way, he's representative of a lot of rich people, including some of us, some of the time. But in the story that Jesus tells, the poor man is named Lazarus. God helps. And in the story, the poor one is blessed. The one who is sick is healed. The hungry one is filled with good things. Lazarus is not a throwaway person. Lazarus is the one whom God helps. And this is the gospel. This is good news for everyone who's been used or abused. This is good news for everyone who has been told you're not worth the trouble. This is good news for everyone who's been left behind by an economic system that prizes production and profits more than anything else. This is good news for everyone who's been beaten down by a social system that values some more than others, that values some skin colors more than others, that values some cultural heritages more than others, that values some sexual identities more than others. It values some socioeconomic groups more than others. This is good news for all of us who hold to this vision of the beloved community, the community in which everyone is welcome and everyone is loved. If there's one thing that Jesus teaches us, it's that there are no throwaway people. God will help in this life and in the life to come. And in this life, like the friends, like the rich man, even like the dogs, we are all called to share in the work of love and justice 
and in the work of mercy. Now, none of us are as wealthy as the rich man in this parable is made out to be. But this is still meant to be a cautionary tale for all of us. In life, the rich man had left Lazarus at the gate. In death, the distance between the two becomes a fixed chasm, right? The rich man asks for mercy and he does not receive it. And he doesn't receive it because he never has understood what mercy is, right? Even in death, even while he's being tormented in Hades, mercy for him is nothing more than using someone else for his own benefit. That's not mercy. In fact, it's the opposite of mercy. Mercy sees and supports the inherent and, and the inestimable value of every other person. In life, the rich man had left Lazarus at the gate. He had refused mercy. He had distorted mercy. And there comes the point, finally, when the chasm that he's created uh, becomes fixed. Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, who's a terrific writer and a terrific preacher, if you ever have a chance to hear her, uh, in her book, Leaving Church, offers a very germane definition of salvation. That's a word we use in church pretty frequently. She writes, uh, salvation is not something that happens only at the end of a person's life. Salvation happens every time someone with a key uses it to open a door that he could lock instead. I like that. Salvation happens every time someone with a key opens a door rather than locking it. But the opposite, of course, can also be true. Salvation does not happen every time someone with a key locks a door rather than opening it. Well, in this parable, this rich man leaves Lazarus at the gate. He had the key, but he locked the door instead of opening it. The thing is that when we lock doors and when we keep locking doors, pretty soon it's not just that other people are kept out. It's that we lock ourselves in. We lock ourselves into lives that are merciless. We lock ourselves into lives that are devoid of compassion. We lock ourselves into lives that are empty of warmth or generosity or joy. We lock ourselves into lives um, that lack love, lives that are absent love, lives that are absent the salvation that comes of unlocking doors, of opening our souls to God and to each other. I often think of that line that C.S. Lewis wrote in uh, The Great Divorce, which is his own parable, kind of an allegory, really, of heaven and hell. He wrote, there are only two kinds of people in the end. The ones who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Throughout his life, the rich man had locked the doors. He had locked Lazarus, Lazarus out. And for the rich man, it comes a point when it is too late, when he has locked himself in. Thy will be done. Now, as we hear this story, it's, it's easy for us to condemn the rich man. And I think it's the proximity in the story that makes it easy. Lazarus is at his gate. Lazarus is right at his curb. He knew his name. He passed by him every day, and he still didn't help. I mean, on Thursday nights, when I take the recycling out, I can see people often on our street who are going through the bins looking uh, to collect cans. I can at least leave a few bottles, right, for them to redeem. But I think that lets us off too easy. It lets me off too easy. And in fact, it's those plastic bottles that we leave at the curb that make the point. 
you know, we like, we like to keep poverty at a distance if we can. And the richer you are, the easier it is. But those plastic bottles connect those of us who are wealthy to poor people like Lazarus at our curb, but even all around the world. Here's what I mean. Um, a while back, Ted, uh, um, Van Jones, Van Jones, who's a CNN commentator, gave a TED talk that was titled The Economic Injustice of Plastic. And the point he made in his talk is that the production and the use and the disposal of plastic hurts people. And it especially hurts poor people. I mean, plastic is made from, uh, from, from, uh, from oil, right, from petrochemicals. And he said that uh, one of the places where plastic is made down in the Gulf of Mexico is actually called Cancer Alley, because in the process of making it, it releases toxic chemicals that shorten the lifespan of people who live there, predominantly poor people who live near there, people of color who live near there. And then he also went on to say that even in recycling, we feel pretty good about putting our plastic bottles out to recycle them. But in recycling, what often happens is those bottles get put on a boat and they get shipped to developing countries. And often they're incinerated in that process, releasing toxic chemicals that again, damage people and predominantly poor people. So in the TED talk, he's talking about, about plastic. But the point that he makes extends more broadly to the way the consumptiveness of our throwaway economy connects all of us. And it comes to this conclusion. The root of this problem, in my view, he said, is the idea of disposability itself. You see, if you understand the link between what we're doing to poison and pollute the planet and what we're doing to poor people, you arrive at a very troubling, but also very helpful insight. In order to trash the planet, you have to trash people. In order to trash the planet, you have to trash people. In a throwaway economy, we end up throwing away people. And the thing is, it's no longer just people at a distance. It's not just people down in the Gulf. It's not people in developing countries. We see it right here in Portland. There was, a, there was an article on the front page of the Oregonian today, from stump town to dump town. And it was about the trash that you see all around the town, uh, piles of garbage, and often connected to, to tents, to RVs, to camps. The focus of the article was on you know, how this mess got there and, how, uh, and what, what's going to be done to clean it up. And, you know, I'm all for cleaning up our town, of course. But it seems to me the root of the problem runs much deeper. It's this idea of disposability itself. Because when we start to view life as a commodity rather than as a gift, when we view people as resources rather than as children of God, then everything and everyone becomes disposable. And when we trash the planet, we end up trashing people, too. But if there's one thing that Jesus teaches, it's that in God's economy, in the kingdom of God, in the beloved community, there are no throwaway people. And so we have to reverse that equation. If the problem is the idea of disposability itself, well, then what's the opposite? To world in which we don't trash people, to world in which we don't trash the planet, to world in which we value people, when we learn the names and the stories of people at our gates. When we use the keys that we've been given to open doors rather than to lock them. So what keys have you been given? What doors can you open? A world in which we value people and value the planet. A world in which, and if we're going to value the planet, it's a world in which we have to reduce consumption. That's really the only way to do it. We have to buy less. We have to use less. We have to recycle less. We have to waste less. 
We have to trash less. So this week, I'd like you to think about what you buy, what you use, what you recycle, what you trash. You know, at the end of this parable, um, when the rich man realizes that he's kind of locked himself in, he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his five brothers. And as we heard earlier, uh, Abraham tells him uh, they have the law and the prophets. They should listen to them. Do they listen? Well, it's an open-ended story. We don't know. Do we listen? Well, that's a pretty good question to ask yourself next time you take your bins to the curb. May God give us ears to hear and hearts to obey.